So again, James, if you remember, this is the half-brother of Jesus. In the beginning, he didn't really believe that Jesus was his Lord and Savior. We know that he followed him at a distance. And at a certain point, both he and all the family and most of the people living in Capernaum, they looked down at Jesus. And they said, man, you're nothing but a carpenter's son. Who are you, right? You're a nobody. But we know afterwards, when Jesus dies and resurrects, that Jesus met with James and after that James's heart is set ablaze for the Lord he's one of the leaders in the church of Jerusalem so he goes from doubting his older brother he follows him right yeah you were always pretty good right yeah you never got into trouble yeah you always looked out for me so I'll follow you but son of God it went to his head right that's what he's thinking but yet how the Lord has worked in his heart. And now this chapter reveals the depths of the love that James has towards Jesus. And look at the way that he addresses him. But one last thing, remembering the background of what's going on here. And David Guzik wrote this a long time ago in this commentary. And just to show that God's word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He says, we do well to remember that James wrote to a very particular age. It was filled with prejudice and hatred. Based on class, ethnicity, nationality, and religious background. In the ancient world, people were routinely and permanently categorized because they were Jew or Gentile. Because they were slave or free. Because they were rich or poor. Because they were Greek or barbarian or whatever. Does that sound a little familiar, right? Maybe some of the things are going on today, if we're quite honest, more than ever, our world or at least our nation, everybody's trying to be placed in one of two extremes. Can't be anywhere in the middle because you believe one thing, you have to be forced into whatever extreme. And that is, of course, damaging to our nation, but as it creeps into the church, it can be damaging to churches. And I'm sure you see other churches, they believe Probably a lot of things we don't believe, right? Some churches that now believe in critical race theory and Black Lives Matter and all sorts of things, right? But that can cause a lot of division within the church. And here James, he's addressing that we shouldn't be divided and we should be looking at our faith, our brothers and sisters, and the world around us through the lens of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Again, family, if you're a believer here, you're a Christian, if you're here and you're saying, hey, when I die, I'm going to heaven, your worldview should be transformed by this book. That's what our worldview should be based upon, is what this book says, not on what the world around us says, or Fox News, or CNN, or Twitter, or Facebook, or whoever your favorite athlete or artist is. Our worldview, our morals should come from the word of God. So verse 1, he says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. So here he first gives us a statement. He gives us a statement in verse 1. Later on, he's going to give us an example in verse 2 and through 4. And then after that, he's going to give us two main reasons in verse 5 through 7, and then in verses 8 through 13. So he gives us a statement, an example, and two reasons for this. So we break down verse 1 first. So again, how does James see himself? With humility. 
He's a brother in the Lord just like any of us. It didn't go to his head, hey, maybe I'm half God because I'm Jesus's, right? I'm Jesus's half brother. It didn't go to his head. He said, hey, I'm just like you guys. You are my brothers and sisters, right? Next, he says, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. And here there's a very big and important truth for us. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And there's that saying, right? Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I don't know if anybody still does that or has ever really thought about doing that. But we can read this and say, okay, I should not hold on to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not whatsoever. We are to hold on to our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, but we are not to do it with partiality. We should be holding on to our faith with all that we have. Again, we should be holding on to our faith more than our nationality, more than where we're from, more than the color of our skin, more than our social class, our job. That should be who we are is our faith in Jesus Christ. Again, is that the number one thing that defines you? Because guess what? In eternity, that's going to be the number one thing that defines you. Jesus isn't, when you get to heaven, so hey, what, let me see your resume. Where were you born? How tall were you? What was your body fat percentage, right? What was your 401k? Were you married, single, lots of kids, no kids, prodigals, no prodigals? Any twins running in the family? Jesus isn't going to be asking us any of those questions. He's just going to say, hey, are you a part of my flock? That's the only thing that's going to define us for the rest of eternity. So again, may that define who we are today. But we are to hold on to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with all that we have. And in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through 14, again, we get Paul, one of the great men of faith. And in chapter 3, verse 12, he says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also lay, laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul, he wanted to apprehend that which he had been apprehended. But in him running and racing towards the goal and towards the prize of the upward call, Paul was holding on to that faith with all that he had. Again, family, have you been apprehended by Jesus Christ? Does Jesus have a hold of your heart? Because if Jesus has a hold of your heart, if he has a hold of your life, if he has a hold of your marriage, then you're going to also have a hold of him. It goes one in the same. So now the question for us is, am I really even holding on to my faith? Right? What defines your faith and relationship with Jesus Christ? Did we accept Jesus to sort of be the cherry on top of this beautiful Sunday that stands before you, right? Is that what we think, that we're pretty great, we're pretty awesome, we're pretty fantastic, and now if you just sprinkle a little bit of Christianity on top, now I'm the best of the best. Is that why you've accepted it? 
Did you come to Jesus because you had a certain problem that you totally messed up, total train wreck, and now you're coming to him to only solve that problem? But then guess what? That problem gets solved, and you sort of put him back in the closet until the next problem arises. Is that what your relationship with Jesus looks like? Or maybe you have the holiday package, right? Maybe you have Jesus and you have a cross, but they hang out in the closet until Christmas comes out, and here comes out baby Jesus, right? Just for Christmas, he comes on out. Christmas is over. We put him back away. Oh, Easter's coming. We put the cross. We need the bunnies, the eggs, but hey, here comes the cross. What does our walk and relationship with Jesus look like? Because here, what James, his brother, is saying is we need to hold on to this with everything we have. This needs to be the most important thing in our lives. We shouldn't just be a Christian because we messed up and we need a big eraser. We shouldn't just be a Christian because we want fire insurance. We should be a Christian because, man, this is the most important thing in my life. I was blind But now I can see. I was dead in my sins and trespasses. And yet Jesus reached out to love me and forgive me and welcome me into the family of God. So now I'm going to love him with all that I got. I'm going to hold on to him with all that I've got. Again, imagine you're getting into a marriage with someone. Why do you want to marry me? Well, it's because you love me so much. No, I just want to have kids. Wait, what? Well, you want to marry me? Oh, it's because you love me so much. No, no, no. It's just because I don't want to work and I want somebody else to work and I'll hang out at the house. You say, what? Right? But oftentimes that's how we treat the Lord. Like, Lord, I don't really want to have a relationship and friendship with you. I just want my bills paid so I could just hang out and everything be okay. Again, we need to be holding on to this faith with all that we have. And again, look at the way that James points to Jesus. The title he gives him. He doesn't say, hey... Hold, do not hold on to the faith of, right, my big bro, Jesus Christ, right? No, he says, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Our Lord, our boss, our commander-in-chief. And then what's the second part there? The Lord of glory. Again, I think people are going to be confused or surprised when we meet Jesus face to face. Again, what do you think of Jesus, right? There's that new show, Chosen. I think they do a really good job of showing who Jesus, you know, was and is. But who do you think of when you think of Jesus? Do you think of this guy that sort of just has a hoverboard and floats around and has a halo? What do you think of him? Revelation chapter 1, it gives us a picture. God's Word gives us a picture of what Jesus is going to look like when we see him Face to face in Revelation chapter 1, so important for us. That way you recognize Jesus when you get to heaven. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 through 8. At first, John, he's just hearing this voice in verse 11. The voice tells him, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Bergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So he's just hearing this voice. But now verse 12, he says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, right? All capitalized. Clothed with garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. 
His head and his hair were white like wool and white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And again, verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Family, when you picture Jesus, who do you think of? Again, he has many roles throughout Scripture. It's so beautiful. It's so amazing to look at all these roles. But we cannot forget that he is God, all-powerful, all-knowing, creator of heaven and earth. Don't forget that. Especially when you're faced with sin, right? When you're faced with the sin of partiality, remember who Jesus is. And don't pass out when you get to heaven and see him, right? Again, remember who he is right here. It's talking about the power of who Jesus is. That his voice, I don't know if you've ever been to Niagara Falls or you're in the middle of a storm or you've been at a waterfall. It's just deafening. His voice was like many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. They say the center of the sun is 20 million degrees times seven. I don't know why. It makes me think of those like little metal stress balls that like people just hang out with in their hand. And again, Jesus doesn't get stressed, but imagine seven suns. That's what he's holding on to. Hey, John, how you doing, man? I need you to write these things down for me, right? Again, the power of our God, the power of Jesus Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Again, I wish we had time, but at the Mount of Transfiguration, God gives these three disciples a tiny picture of who Jesus really is, right? We think of Jesus so much in his humanity, but he gives them just a tiny, tiny picture of who Jesus is. And what do they all do? They fall flat on their face. It was so bright they couldn't see. It was brighter than the sun. I don't know, when was the last time you tried looking straight up at the sun? I don't know why as little kids we do that all the time, right? I don't know if you as adults are still trying to see how long you can stare at the sun. But again, the power of Christ, this all-knowing, all-powerful being who is willing to come and die, taking our place, taking my place, paying for my sins, and resurrecting so that I could resurrect in heaven with him. Is that your Jesus? Is that your reason that you're going to heaven? Is that the reason why your marriage is held together or school's going well or work is going well? Or you're in the midst of trials and you're saying, hey, it's going to be okay because I know who my Redeemer is. Again, family, remember who he is when we're faced with sin, when we're faced with trial. Remember, he is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Remember that. We go back to James chapter 2. So now that hopefully we know, hey, we need to hold on to our faith with dear life. It needs to be the most important thing. Listening to a teaching, it says that Jesus needs to sit on the throne of our hearts. 
Again, he didn't come to be your co-pilot. He didn't come to sit on your board of directors. He came to be the leader, the king of your life. He came not just to knock, knock and be inside your heart. No, he came to be enthroned on top of your heart and on top of your life and on top of all that we do. But now he tells us, hey, don't hold on to him in what? In partiality. Don't hold on to this faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Partiality, again, it affected this church back in the day, but I know it doesn't affect us whatsoever, right? Partiality, which is discrimination. Discrimination that's based on outward appearance or preferences of persons in various ways. Discrimination, if we're honest, we do all discriminate. For some of us here, it really is based on color, right? As that's the loudest noise. For some of us, I don't think for all of us, but let's not go down that rabbit show, right? But what it reveals to us is we discriminate based on outward appearance. And if we're honest, we can't help it in our own flesh. Even Samuel, we'll look at him later on. We just started going through 1 Samuel with the young adults. We really see no sin mentioned on Samuel. Yet when Samuel goes to anoint a new king for Israel, who are the first people he's looking at? It's all the big boys, right? All the big ones, all the strong ones, all the muscular ones. He goes, God, this has to be the guy you want to use. Saul was big, right? Big muscle. Yeah, God, you could use this guy, right? And we'll look at that later on. But we all struggle with partiality, family. And it really depends on what we like or what we think is important. If we're honest, if somebody would come and sit right next to us and they had a Trump 2020 shirt, some of us, we'd be thrown in a tizzy, right? And you may want to move. If someone will come next to you and they have a Biden-Harris t-shirt, you may faint, right? And be thrown in a tizzy and want to move. There's different things in our hearts, whether we realize it or not, are almost as important as this walk and relationship with Jesus Christ. And we need to be careful with that. He's going to show us in a moment that for most of us, it has to deal with money, right? Somebody comes in, and maybe they don't smell the best. You're not asking them, hey, what's that scent you got from Navajo, right? You're not asking them that. You know where that scent came from. It came from a lack of showers, right? And they come in, and where do you want to sit? As far away from them, right? The ushers, they put them right next to you. You're not saying, oh, Lord, I pray for them. You're just saying, oh, Lord, I pray for me, right? Help me get through this teaching. Help me focus. Are they going to take my money? Are they going to do something crazy? That's the way we are. But now if somebody comes in, they look beautiful. They look handsome. They have the nicest clothes, the newest shoes. You may even want to talk to them, see what they're into, right? If they have a T-shirt or they have something that's equal to your hobbies, they have a purse that you've been looking at, right? You may even break conversation with them, want to talk to them, say, no, 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 come sit here next to me. And again, this affected family, the church, right at its inception. Again, anywhere from 30 to 40, 50 AD is when this book is written, and this plagued the church. James had to say, hey, our God is not a God of partiality, and we need to be reminded of this tonight. That we should not be partial when it comes to people and the word of God. A lot of scriptures to go through. So Acts chapter 10, verse 34 through 36. This is a separate story. This is Peter with Cornelius. In chapter 10, verse 34, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. 
But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Again, God shows no partiality. Peter's saying this when the Lord comes to him. He gives him this crazy dream, this crazy vision, right? A picnic basket floating down from heaven with your favorite lechon and bacon and shrimp and lobster, everything that's unclean, cheeseburgers raining from the sky. He has this crazy vision. And he says, no, Lord, I could never do that because I never did that before. My whole life I was told that was unclean. My whole life I was taught to look down on that. So now, Lord, you want me to go reach out to them? You want me to go love on them? You want me to go pray with them? And Peter, he has the right heart. He says, hey, man, God shows no partiality. But what is God looking for? Every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. You can write down Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17 through 20. Again, it touches both on the power of who God is and Jesus is and that he hates partiality. Verse 17, chapter 10, Deuteronomy. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. He is the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and for the widow, and he loves the stranger giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall, serve, you shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast. Right? We get that same picture of holding fast and take oaths in his name. Again, our God, he is the God, right? The only God. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and in him there is no partiality. And that's why in us, we all need to work on that. We all need to work on that. That we would not have partiality when we look at people. And why should we not have partiality when we look at people? Because family, he showed no partiality when he looked at us. When he dealt with me, he didn't say, Oof, GED. Uh, I don't know if I could use this guy, right? He grew up in the church and yet he was a prodigal. I don't know if I can use this guy. He's a Cuban. He went here. He went there. He does what? I can't use this guy. No, he was just looking for someone with a broken and contrite heart, right? A nation that was willing to fear the Lord. And he is the one that administers justice. And our God, our Lord, he loves to care for the underdog in a sense, right? The fatherless, the widow, the stranger. He says, hey, remember them. Take care of them because you were once strangers in Egypt. We'll look at that later on, the danger of forgetting where we have come from. The danger of forgetting the miry clay that we were in when Jesus pulled us out. In Ephesians chapter 2, we can turn there. A very important part of Jesus and what he has done for us is he took us when we were separated from God and now he united us. It's really the opposite of partiality. Instead of forcing someone away because you don't like the way they look or like... They don't agree with the things that you like. Instead, Jesus brought us near to him. In Ephesians chapter 2, we'll read a chunk here. Verse 11 through 18, he tells us, Therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh 
who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Again, there's no partiality in God or in Jesus. In fact, Jesus, when he sees separation, he wants to bring it together. That's the heart of Jesus. But when he sees separation of sin, he wants to bring it together. This is something dangerous that happens within churches. And it can even happen within us as believers. And this is too important not to turn there. We go to Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 through 39, trying to remind us of the full counsel of God. Yes, Jesus came to bring unity, to bring us as sinners to the Lord But Jesus did not come to bring unity to the entire world if they would not humble themselves, right? Have that broken and contrite heart, that nation that's willing to fear the Lord. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 through 39, it tells us, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, family, Jesus, he is the answer to our problems in this world. Jesus, he really is the only thing that can truly unify our nation or our entire world. But anyone who is unwilling to give up their sins, anyone who is unwilling to say, Jesus, you are Lord Anyone who's not willing to say whatever the Bible says is from the word and mouth of God, there's not going to be unity there, but instead there's going to be a sword. There's not going to be peace there, but a sword. So again, our God, he's perfect. He's a God of complete grace, mercy, and love, but he's also a God of righteousness and justice and law. Again, the incredible thing is he sent his son to be the payment to fulfill the law. He sent his son. He said, hey, the wages of sin is death. Death separated from me. You're going to have to die for all of eternity. 
So now he sends his only begotten son to die, taking our place. So justice law, it's still fulfilled, but now there's grace and mercy extended to us. So now we don't have to go through that law and through that justice. But again, Jesus, he's not about partiality. He is about unity. He is what unifies the body of Christ. And again, if you're honest, I don't know if you've ever thought this. Maybe I'm just the only mean person that thinks this, right? Sometimes you look at a brother or sister and you just hung out with them. You just had lunch or dinner with them and you say, wow, Lord, if it wouldn't be for you, I would have never met this person in my entire life, right? You have people here who are ex-cons and you have people here who are police officers. Now, don't just asking who's the ex-con because you're showing partiality. You're showing partiality if you're doing that, right? Again, you have people here who've been single their whole life. You have people here that have six, seven kids, right? And it's Jesus Christ that unifies us. Some of us, we had no kids, and now we find ourselves serving in youth ministry or young adults or kiddos ministry. And through Jesus Christ, he unifies us into this beautiful family. Some of us, we lost our dad, we lost our mom when we were young, and yet he brings us into this beautiful family, and he brings those spiritual mothers and fathers for us. There is the greatest unity that this world can ever see. It should be within the church. Each church should have, like heaven, all nations, all tongues, all colors, right? That's what the church should have. But yet sin is still sin, and truth is still truth. Now in verse 2 through 4, he gives us an example And you know when somebody gives you a super specific example? Eh, right? There's probably some weight to it, right? James had probably seen this in synagogues and in assemblies. And sadly, we see this in churches today. And in the synagogue, you would sit according to your paycheck, basically. Your net worth, how much money you made, how important you were. You would sit within the synagogue. Some churches are like that. You're part of the VIP program, so you sit in the front, or maybe the VIP program's in the back, right? I don't know. You give this certain amount, and this is your pew. This is your chair. There is the same danger we see within churches today. But in verses 2 through 4, it says, For if there should come into your assembly, that literally means your synagogue, your church, a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes. And you say to him, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, hey, you stand over there. Or you know what? Maybe you could come sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So again, here he gives us this example. You probably can pick up on what's going on here. This man with gold rings, it's someone who's extremely wealthy. Extremely wealthy. In Roman culture, they basically had rental rings, right? If you had a big party, a big function, and you wanted to sort of impress the people around you, you could go and rent gold rings to just wear them at the party, right? Do we not have things like that today, right? Exotic car rentals, right? How many people crash their exotic car rentals? But we have things like that today, right? People, they rent tuxes. They wear things. And for some of us, we just want to look nice for one picture. But there are people that they do it to just come off as someone more important. So you have this man that in their eyes, he is filthy rich. He is super rich. He has all the money, all the power. And what do they do? They bring him to the front or to the back. Whatever you think is the best seat in church, right? Maybe it's right in the middle so the AC hits you. Maybe it's off to the side so the AC doesn't hit you as hard, right? 
Whoever was the best seat in the church, they said, hey, you, you have to come and sit here. But now a poor man came in, and this poor man, it's telling us he's a very poor man, even to the point of being a beggar. And you tell him, hey, you, there's no room here. Uh, you, you can stand in the back over there if you want. I have an extra footstool. Usually I put my feet up. You can sit down here next to my footstool if you want it. What it tells us in verse 4 is, A, right, you've shown partiality and you have become judges with evil thoughts. You see, family, the danger is we, whether we like it or not, we think we're judges. And we look at someone and if they're dressed all nice and proper, we judge them as someone important. Someone we would like to get to know. Someone that maybe they can fulfill a need that I have. Maybe they'll make me seem cooler, right? Maybe they have a boat and I'll be able to go on a boat. Maybe I'll be able to sell them my insurance or, right? I don't think anybody still sells Herbalife, right, or any other, uh, right? Nobody else is part of a pyramid scheme. Sadly, that, that creeps into churches, right? Oh, man, this guy, oh, yes, maybe I can hook them and they'll be the, the member right under me. That's not what we should be looking at when we're at churches. Much less now you see someone who doesn't have that much money. Someone who has raggedy clothes. Someone who comes in and maybe they don't smell the greatest. And now you say, you know what? That person, through our judgment, right? We say, hey, that person's not that important. That person is not as important as that guy with the money. That person, man, they're not as important to the gospel that's about to be shared. That person is not as important as what's needed here within the church. Again, partiality is just making a distinction to prefer one person to another. And again, our God shows no partiality. He's that perfect father that loves all of his kids equally. Doesn't matter how much money they have. Doesn't matter the life that they're in. He loves us. He loves us all equally. When we do this, we're saying, hey, I'm the judge of who is important and who is not important. Family, we have to be careful doing so. And now in verse 5, it tells us, hey, pay attention to God's view of the poor. Reason number one. He says, listen, right? Hearken, pay attention here, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have discovered the, you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? Again, family, we need to be careful. Part of the way that John the Baptist knew that Jesus' ministry was actually Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 1 through 6. John the Baptist, he sends his messengers and he's saying, Hey, is Jesus really the Son of God? Is he really the one? And look at the signs that Jesus gives him so that he can identify, wow, this really is the Messiah. Matthew chapter 11, verse 1 through 6. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples And he said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And Jesus said to them, go and tell John the things which you see and hear. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, 
and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Verse 6, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. You see, family, the Lord, he does have a very special heart for those who are poor in this world. Jesus even warns us of those who are rich that there's a danger that everything in life is set up so they don't need to turn to God in those moments of brokenness or hurting. It takes a lot more for them, right? He says it's like if you have to put a camel through the eye of the needle. That's what it's like for a rich man to come to the Lord. Now, is it impossible? No. Right? All things are possible through Christ. We know that there are donors throughout Scripture that help the church in Jerusalem, that help all the churches beginning, but that's not what is common within Christianity. And sadly, what does most Christianity try to portray? They're not portraying, hey, right? Hey, are you the coming one? Are you the coming church? Are you the happening church, right? They don't say, hey, the poor have the gospel preached to them. The lame are walking. Lepers are cleansed. Yeah, we're full with a bunch of lame people and sick people and poor people are hearing the gospel. Is that what a church tries to come off as and advertise? No, they try to act like they're the happening place. They're the big place. They take pictures with different movie stars and athletes trying to show, hey, we are the place. But that's not who Jesus identified with. So now if we are looking down on people just because they're poor, we've dishonored them. And now the second part of this is they really also dishonored the rich man. Because the only reason they wanted to bring up the rich man was because of what? He had money. And if you have money, everybody in the world is trying to hound you down. And it's not because your personality. It's not because of how much they love you. It's not because they want to be there for you when things get rough. They're just after your money. So again, how sad would it be if within church, where they should get a break, there should be relief, there should be the perfect family of God here, and people are hounding them down for their next business venture, right? Their next car, their next this, their next that. We should have no partiality. We should love everyone equally. We should be looking to the Holy Spirit. Lord, who do you want me to spend time with at church? Lord, who do you want me to sit next to at church? And again, the Lord will show you. The Lord will reveal that to you. But do not just place one person more important than the other. If we're honest, most of the time it's because we're looking to get something out of one person or another person. And if we deem this person that we cannot take anything from them, we sort of push them to the side. We say, hey, I don't got any time for you, right? But how does Christ deal with us? Is that how he dealt with us? I'm sorry, I have nothing to add to Jesus. He's kind of got it all together, right? And yet he welcomed me. He loved me as his own son. Again, family, that's the way we're supposed to love the family of God. Anyone in here that actually does want to come in here and hear the word of God. There will be people, again, in these last days, they want to come. They want to cause problems. They want to cause fights. But if someone's coming and they want to hear the word of God, we're not to show that partiality. We're to love on them. I encourage you, pray for the ushers. Pray for the security team. Their job is difficult. Their ministry is hard. They got to be filled with the Holy Spirit to know, hey, this is a broken person or this is a person that wants to break something, right? They got to be praying all the time. Lord, show me who this person is. Show me what's going on. Because again, within our own movement, within Calvary Chapel, we have all types of people that got saved. In the beginning with Pastor Chuck, it was a bunch of hippies that didn't shower, wouldn't wear shoes, wouldn't wear sandals. They would come into the church and 
right? I think some of the churches have it, the little communion circles, that little circle, that's what it's supposed to be there for, for a communion cup. They'd be sticking their toe and their toe jam in the communion cups. That's what they'd be doing inside the little holes. And some of the people, they came from, right, an Orthodox church, and they were mad, they were bothered, but Chuck says, leave them alone. But they're going to mess up the rug, they're going to stain the rug, then rip out the rug. We're not going to stop these people from hearing the word of God. That's the legacy of our movement. That's the same heart that we should have. But the Lord, he is the judge of all. But look at what God judges. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Again, family, we have to be careful when we're just judging people based on the outward appearance. May we be filled with the Spirit so that the Lord, and He's the only one that can judge hearts, but we know that there's the gift of discernment. And we should all be praying for that. Lord, give me the gift of discernment so I can come into church and I can see, man, the person that's really hurting, that person that's really angry, the person that's really joyful, the person that they're living a double life and yet they're dying inside. Lord, show me the heart. That's the way we should be looking at people. And if we're honest, some of the greatest partiality that we show is to ourselves. How often does somebody say, hey, have you thought about serving here? And what do we say? I'm not good enough. I can't, I don't speak that well, or I'm not good at this, I'm not good at that. What you're saying is if only you had these certain talents, if only you had this certain body type, if only you had these certain things, then God would want to use you because you were so gifted. But that's not who God uses. God uses what? The foolish and weak things of this world to confound the wise. Welcome to the club, right? That's who we are. So now when we give the Lord excuses why he can't use us, you're showing partiality. You're saying, Lord, if only I looked like this person or had these gifts, then you would want to use me here. Or it can fall to the other part, which is equally as bad. Of course God wants to use me in this ministry because I am amazing at this ministry, right? Have you ever heard me play the guitar? It's like angels coming down from heaven. Of course God wants me in worship. Nobody knows the Bible more than me. Of course God wants me in teaching. I know every hand movement. Of course God wants me in parking lot. What are you talking about, right? And you're showing partiality. You're thinking because you have certain gifts or you don't have certain gifts, Lord, you could never use me there. And all throughout the Bible, is it not the opposite, right? He uses all types of people, all types of people. He uses Gideon, afraid in a cave. He uses Samson, a knucklehead. He uses David, a shepherd that likes playing the harp, right? He uses all types of people. He uses a fisherman. He uses a tax collector working for the government. Yeah, he uses people in IRS. He uses accountants, right? The Lord, he can use everyone. He uses the centurion. He uses the little boy with his Lunchables, right? Some fish, some bread. He uses him. So wherever you're at, don't make excuses that the Lord can't use you. You're showing partiality. Again, God, he doesn't say, wow, I again, God created all of us. Man, I created this guy with all these gifts. Poof, he's a perfect man for the job. No, the Lord looks at the heart. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 30, and this has been a, a source of encouragement for me, man, within the church, the ministry, the family. Should be a source of encouragement to you or a source of conviction. Verse 30, therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. 
But now, the Lord says, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Again, family, the Lord looks at your heart. The Lord looks at the fruit of your life. The Lord looks at, are you abiding with him or not? And if you are, he wants to show himself strong and mighty on your behalf. Acts chapter 1 verse 24, you can just write it down again. This is when the disciples were praying and asking, Lord, show us who the next disciple is supposed to be. Acts chapter 1 verse 24, they prayed and they said, You, O Lord, who knows the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13, it tells us there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The Lord sees all, family. You may be hiding behind your giftings. You may be hiding behind your stature. You may be hiding behind your money or lack of money. You may be hiding behind your job or position. But the Lord sees your heart. And again, that's either really scary to us. Or that's very encouraging to us. Or scary and encouraging at the same time, right? Is your heart right before the Lord? Where you're serving, the way you treat people, the way you act with people. Do you think some people are more important than others? Does one person come and talk to you and you just write them off and you're looking away to get out? And now you run to have a conversation with somebody else. Where are we at? Reason number two. So reason number one, right? It's because that's not who God is. God, he's chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith. One last thing here. There's different types of people. There are people who are poor on this earth, and yet they're rich in heaven, right? They laid up their treasures in heaven. There are people who are rich in this earth, but they're poor in heaven because they laid up no treasures in heaven. And now we have those who they're poor on this earth and poor in heaven. And then the last one, I think that's the one we all hope to be, right? They're rich on earth. And they're rich in heaven. The Lord gave them, right? Money is just a tool. Money's not all evil. No, the love of money is the root of all evil. And there are those that have used the tools that God has given them for the kingdom of God. And they'll be rich on this earth and rich in heaven. So, man, pray. There's a lot of weight there. Reason number two, verse 8 through 11. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law Again, James is telling us here, it's not enough to not just do one sin. And he's here talking about the Ten Commandments. It's not enough to just not do one sin, right? Most of us were on that level, right? Hey, I didn't kill anyone, right? Sammy says, I didn't kill nobody, right? I just corked the bat, but I didn't kill nobody. I didn't do anything wrong, right? I haven't killed anyone. I haven't, I haven't slept with my neighbor, right? I'm not that bad of a person. No, if you commit one sin, you're guilty of all sins, and now he's telling us, if you show partiality, you're sinning, and now you are a transgressor. Again, there's two ways into heaven. You're perfect, or you have a friendship and relationship with Jesus Christ. And no one's perfect except Jesus Christ. So, man, he's the only way. 
He's the only way into heaven. You commit one sin and you have committed them all. The trick here, and most of us, we ask it in Luke chapter 10. Jesus, he's here and he speaks to these men, right? These lawyers. And they think they're real smart. They ask Jesus, hey, what's the most important commandment? They try to trick him. If he says this one, then we'll get him with that one. But Jesus being Jesus, he's incredible, right? So he tells them, Luke chapter 10, hey, you got to love the Lord with everything you got. And then the second commandment, it's like it, it's important, love your neighbor as yourself. But now in chapter 10, verse 25, he tells them a parable, right? Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and he tested him saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, this is so convicting, but he wanting to justify himself, he says to Jesus, hey, but who is my neighbor, right? You tell me I have to love my neighbor as myself, but who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among the thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, he came, he looked, and he passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him, he bandaged his wounds, he poured on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal. He brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And on the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three... Do you think was the neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he, sh- he who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Again, family, our neighbor, it's, it's everyone around us. It's anyone in need. We're all sinners. We're all in need. The one who showed mercy, we are to go and do likewise to all mankind. We're to love. We got to love. We got to be wise, but we're to show mercy. We go back to James. We close up verse 12 and 13. He says, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What's reason number two why we shouldn't show partiality? Because we are going to be judged for all that we do. Christians, we will be judged for all that we do. There's two judgments. One judgment, very simple, saved or not saved. Abiding, not abiding. In a relationship and friendship with Jesus Christ or not. But now the second judgment, the Lord, he's, we're going to take our whole life's work, right? Some people, they have their whole life's work. They've been in school, right? Med school, eight years, ten years. Some people, they're getting their doctorate. I always think of the Dyson guy, right? I forget, he spent like ten years or twenty years on that vacuum. His whole life's work, right? We're going to spend all our life's work, and it's going to be laid there before Jesus, and then he's going to burn it with fire. And only the things done for him with the right heart 
are going to still be there. And then they're going to be jewels. They're going to be gold. I think he'll put that on that crown. And they'll be able to lay that at his feet. Saying, Jesus, thank you for giving me eternal life. But now if we've lived a life within church that's been all partiality, everything we did in church was to impress someone, to try to get a hookup, to try to get a discount, to try to scratch my back, it's all going to burn. There's going to be nothing left on that table. And again, I do believe there are people that have saved souls but wasted lives. We see that with Samson, right? Saved soul, but man, what a wasted life. Family, may that not be us. Don't show partiality because we are going to be judged. There's scarier judgments. God's word tells us every word that we say will be judged. Every word that we say, every word that we type, every word that we text, every word that we post on stories, hidden, disappearing, every word that we say, God is going to judge it. Every single word. Verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Again, family, we're going to be judged for our actions, for our heart towards one another. Have we shown mercy or were we a foolish servant? Again, we should live, we should speak in a way remembering, man, everything I do, I'm going to be faced with judgment. Jesus, he gives us these parables of this man, right? He owed the king five bucks. He was about to go to jail. He's begging the king, please don't throw me in prison. The king frees him, saves him. What does he do? He goes and he finds, no, he owed the king like $5,000, right? He owes the king a ton of money. The king forgives him, saves him, and he goes and finds the guy that owed him five bucks, He took him to Wendy's and he didn't pay him back, right? He finds him. He's choking him out saying, pay me what's mine. Pay me what's mine. He throws that guy into prison. And when the king finds out, what does he do? He frees that other guy and he throws him into prison. He says, you foolish servant. Again, family, when we don't show mercy to others, we're forgetting all the mercy that God has bestowed on us. Has God shown you mercy? Or do you deserve everything you got? Everything was off of you. You were born here because of you. You came to this country because of you. You're alive here because of you. Your heart's working right because of you. It was all you. Or you're saying, Lord, you're so merciful. Lord, you are so good to me. Matthew chapter 5 verse 7. I love it. So simple. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Family, why should we be merciful towards one another? Because I need mercy. I don't know about you guys, but I need mercy. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. It tells us, right? And this scripture, everybody knows this scripture. But you got to read the whole entirety of it. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, there's a plank in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you're going to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. 
Family, this whole scripture, it's not that we are not to judge. It's not that we should never judge someone else. It's just that we should be ready. However we judge others, it's going to come right back to us. Really, if we love other people, we should try to help remove the specks from their eyes. But we got to make sure there's not a four by four in our eye while we're trying to take this little nitpicky thing out of their eye. We need to address our own lives first. There's going to be judgment everywhere, right? Everywhere, all over the universe. God is going to judge. But may we make sure we're being merciful towards one another. We're being gracious towards one another. Because Jesus, has he not been merciful and gracious to us?